Welcome to another edition of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors and guests discuss some of the most pressing health policy news of the week. I'm Rob Lott. And I'm Michael Gerber. Uh, hey, Rob. It's August, which means we're nearing the end of camp season for our kids, but also that things are a bit slower <laughs> on the policy front, at least here in Washington, where I am now, but members of Congress certainly are not. Yeah, Michael, uh, here in Chicago, August is when uh, the Cubs at least pretend to make a run for the playoffs, while the White Sox uh, continue to self-destruct. But uh, I remember from my time on the Hill that one of the pleasures of August recess, besides having the boss out of your hair and back home, was uh, also having the luxury of some time to uh, plan and prepare for the fall when the chaos would inevitably start all over again. So true. Um, But of course, not everyone is taking the summer off. Uh, First, I want to make sure our listeners check out the August issue of Health Affairs, hot off the presses, and also sign up for our upcoming August Journal Club. Um, You can find out more about both of those on our website. Um, And then we're also looking for great research and perspectives on all all health policy topics as usual, but we're specifically soliciting abstracts for two future theme issues. The deadline for our perinatal mental health issue is coming up on August 21st. And for our issue on reimagining public health, the deadline is September 11th. You can find out more on our website and be sure to check out the link in the show notes and to send us those abstracts. And speaking of perinatal mental health, Another group who's keeping busy this summer are the food and drug regulators over at the FDA, who recently approved a drug for postpartum depression, which might be exciting, and and made some other big announcements. Rob, fill us in a bit on what they've been up to. Yeah, Michael, uh, in just a moment, I know we'll talk a little bit about some of the bigger picture trends going on at FDA, but um, as you know, a few days go by without some kind of specific decision or approval Um, or key advancement around new technologies and innovations um, coming out of uh, FDA. And so I thought I'd start by mentioning three of these. Um, The first came last month when FDA approved uh, Norgestrel, the first daily oral contraceptive approved for use in the U.S. without a prescription. In other words, when the uh, now-approved tablet hits the market, it means that consumers will uh, basically be able to um, go to the drugstore, convenience store, grocery store, even online to uh, get this oral contraceptive medicine. Uh, so this sounds like a big advancement, especially in terms of access for people who might not have a regular doctor. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, uh, the second key announcement I wanted to flag is the recent approval for the first time of a blood test that can identify those individuals most at risk of developing preeclampsia, a form of high blood pressure that can develop during pregnancy or after childbirth, and it's the leading cause of maternal death in the United States. And this test, it can sort of see into the future, if you will, uh, by about two weeks to assess uh, someone's risk of developing the condition. So if it only sees two weeks ahead, does that mean you'll need multiple blood draws over the course of pregnancy to stay on top of the risk? Theoretically, that's exactly right. Uh, But when you compare it to how preeclampsia was monitored for in the past, um, we're talking about frequent blood pressure readings, urine analyses, with a great deal of uncertainty and risk of sudden fluctuation. This test uh, is looking at least like a, a big step forward. Um, Now, um, finally, let me just mention the third key announcement. You alluded to it earlier. It came last week with the FDA's approval of the first 
oral medication indicated to treat postpartum depression in adults. Until now, uh, this particular treatment for postpartum depression was only available as an IV injection given by a healthcare provider in certain healthcare facilities. Uh, but now you can get a prescription for a two-week course of treatment. Really, it's just that short, two weeks, and uh, pick it up at the pharmacy. So again, a big step forward in terms of access, uh, right? Because we know a lot of women with postpartum depression aren't getting the treatment that could really help them. So this new approval should uh, should make it easier to get. Uh, well, great, Rob. Thanks for filling us in. Um, so three big announcements, but what's the common thread? Well, on its face, I think the obvious connection here is that they all touch on reproductive and maternal health in one way or another. Um, as we've covered over the years, the United States has a really terrible record when it comes to maternal mortality. And it's clear that there's no singular magic bullet solution. Problems like these are systems problems. And the real way to make progress um, across systems is incrementally in the form of new processes, delivery models, techniques, and yes, new drugs and diagnostics like, like this. So each piece we can hope will contribute in a small way um, to progress. Now, all that said, Michael, um, FDA is such a large and complex agency. We also know it's not perfect, and uh, there's still a lot of room for improvement. Right, and um, and obviously, the you know the the drugs, devices, um, including those you mentioned, all go through some level of study to make sure they're safe and effective. But it's not all equal for for everything the FDA approves. Um, I don't think it was mentioned uh, in any of those three, but the accelerated approval pathway has certainly been a subject of interest for researchers and policymakers lately. Um, just last week, um, we published an interesting piece on Health Affairs Forefront by Omar Robles, a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and managing partner at Emergent Health, a consulting firm. And in the piece, he discusses ways uh, he thinks the accelerated approval pathway program could be improved. Um, and just for background, the accelerated approval program, it was launched um, in 1992 to allow for earlier approval of drugs that, that fill a need and treat a serious condition. Of course, it's not always clear um, and pretty subjective what that means. Um, and it it allows for this approval based on trials showing that the drug reached a surrogate endpoint maybe, but not necessarily the main clinical outcome. One of the uh, recent Alzheimer's drugs came up through this pathway, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, again, not sure if I'm saying this right. Adjuhelm, I believe, um, was granted accelerated approval uh, just about two years ago, um, made a lot of news at the time, um, because it was shown to reduce amyloid plaque buildup. But the evidence linking that to actual improved memory or cognition and better quality of life is tenuous, according to some experts. And the initial trials showed modest, if any, improvements in those uh, outcomes. Um, another well-known example that's been in the news of a drug that received accelerated approval was Makina, um, which was approved for preterm birth in 2011. Um, but by 2020, nine years later, the FDA Center for Drug Evaluation and Research was recommending it be withdrawn from the market. And a few years later, it, it was taken off the market first voluntarily, and then the FDA did um, withdraw its approval. Um, for the first two decades of the program, though, the accelerated approval um, process was really used mostly for drugs treating HIV AIDS um, 
or cancer and, and a lot of rare diseases. Um, over the last 10 years, it's been almost exclusively for cancer treatments. I think some research says more than 80% of the drugs are for cancer treatments. Um, and it's helped get a lot of drugs on the market that have that have improved people's lives, but there's also evidence that the confirmatory trials that are supposed to follow the accelerated approval often don't happen or certainly not quickly enough. Now, wait a second, Michael, the confirmatory trials, that seems like a, a pretty big part of this program and sort of the, the trade-off for the in exchange for the accelerated approval. If those trials aren't happening, isn't that a problem? Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, the accelerated approval is not intended as far as um, initially to allow drugs to stay on the market without having the same confirmation as drugs that go through the normal approval process. Um, so it's been on the radar of policymakers. Congress recently gave the FDA the authority to require a drug maker to start a confirmatory trial when accelerated approval is granted. But Robles in his forefront piece says it's still unclear whether they'll use that authority and whether forcing pharmaceutical companies to start a trial means they will complete a trial anytime soon. Um, he proposes a potential solution, which is to repeal a drug's exclusivity if a confirmatory trial is not completed by a certain time. Um, and what that means is, you know, when, when a drug maker uh, makes a drug. One of the ways we um, incentivize that in this country is to give them exclusive rights to market and sell that drug for a certain period of time. Um, and that's a huge economic incentive because of all the investment that goes into making a drug. They want to make sure that they can make money off of it after it's approved. So he thought that uh, incentivizing this confirmatory trial and taking away exclusivity if they don't do it within a certain time might ensure that accelerated approval drugs still get the further research needed to make sure they're actually achieving what they're supposed to be. In that same vein, I briefly also want to mention another Forefront article by Robert Shapiro, Professor Emeritus at the Larner College of Medicine at uh, Vermont. Uh, this one is all about therapeutic devices, and the piece zeroes in on a flaw in the system for how devices are reviewed and paid for. Essentially, he argues that there's a lower bar of evidence for devices to be uh, cleared uh, compared to pharmaceuticals. And so for drugs, with a few exceptions, you really do need to have done a rigorous randomized controlled trial of drug safety and effectiveness before FDA will sign off. The standard for devices, though, is lower. Um, and beginning in the 90s, manufacturers could choose instead to rely on partially controlled studies, studies without match controls, data from outside the U.S., real-world evidence, um, case histories when seeking approval. Would he argue that that has made devices easier to reach the market? Yes and no. So it, it did make it easier for devices to gain sign-off, but without rigorous randomized controlled trials behind these devices, payers have been a lot more reluctant to pay for them. And if uh, you as a patient, if your insurer isn't going to cover the cost of a new knee, for example, you're probably either going to be paying out of pocket, not cheap, or more likely simply choosing another option. And if I'm an investor in a device and bringing that device to market, that's bad news. All right. So what does he propose as the solution? Well, um, you know, we really want to incentivize device makers to conduct uh, these more rigorous trials. And Shapiro proposes essentially giving device makers some additional marketing exclusivity if they do. 
not only would this encourage the development of better evidence around the devices, it might also attract additional investment from venture capital and other sources. At the end of the day, though, it's really complicated. That's what Shapiro sort of underscores, and the solutions certainly aren't clear-cut. Yeah, it sounds like uh, both of these articles are proposing using that exclusivity um, incentive to get better evidence, but um, it'll be interesting to see if if anyone takes up those uh, proposals and also if they're effective. Yeah. Of course, in addition to being highlighted in Health Affairs Forefront pieces recently, the FDA has, has garnered some probably unwanted attention on the campaign trail. Um, in fact, a few presidential candidates have mentioned the agency. I think a rarity, considering how little attention healthcare overall is getting on the campaign trail at the moment. Rob, when, when you worked on the Hill and later at HHS, do you recall the FDA being the main focus of, of political or campaign discussions in healthcare? You know, not really. There were certainly moments in the spotlight for the for the agency, but for the most part, um, FDA was seen, and I believe it definitely still is, a, an incredibly professional organization driven by the work of thousands of really smart, dedicated professionals. Yeah, well, um, probably thanks to the FDA's role in approving vaccines and also um, medication-assisted abortion drugs. Um, it's gotten some attention from some of the GOP candidates running for president. Um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who who definitely, even though he's not a front runner by any standard, has a following and some credibility as a biotech entrepreneur, recently posted a video calling the FDA corrupt and promising to expose and ultimately gut the century-old agency. And of course, uh, similarly, Governor Ron DeSantis recently told an interviewer that he agreed with Robert Kennedy Jr. on a lot of issues, especially vaccines and COVID, and that he would, quote, sick him on the FDA. Um, <laughs> he later walked that back a bit when his fellow Republicans pointed out that RFK Jr. is a Democrat, and these days, you know, we're not allowed to cross party lines like that. Yeah, it seems like a distant memory um uh, when you look back to, say, the 2016 election when the debates were really focused on uh, the Affordable Care Act. Yeah, um, very true. And speaking of debates, the first GOP primary debate is coming up later this month. So we'll see if these were just a couple of off comments about the FDA or if it really is an issue that rises to the forefront as some candidates try to make a name for themselves. Great. Well, Michael, it's been great chatting with you. This is probably a good spot to wrap up. Uh, thanks for your time and thanks to everyone for listening. Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to Health Affairs this week wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week.